Hey, I'm Olivia Covington, host of the Indiana Lawyer Podcast. And before we get into this week's episode, I want to tell you about the newest podcast from IBJ Media called Off the Record with the Indiana 250. In each episode, IBJ Media CEO Nate Feltman talks with a different leader on the Indiana 250 list of the state's most influential leaders. They discuss their vision for Indiana's future, their experiences in business, and their advice for other aspiring entrepreneurs. New episodes are released on select Thursdays, so go subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. Just search for Indiana 250 off the record. Hello and welcome to the Indiana Lawyer Podcast, your source for news in Hoosier Law, brought to you by Taft. I'm Olivia Covington, Indiana Lawyer Editor and your host this week. Thanks for joining us. The country just celebrated Veterans Day, so it seemed like a good time for us to take a deep dive into our state's veterans courts. In this week's extended interview, I chat with Floyd County Judge Maria Granger about launching the state's first veterans court more than a decade ago, how the program has grown since then, and her personal ties to veterans issues. But before we get to that, I'm here in our Monument Circle studio with Indiana Lawyer Managing Editor Daniel Carson and reporter Alexa Schrake to give you a rundown of this week's top legal news. It's Wednesday, November 15th, 2023, and these are your headlines. Let's start off with what is arguably the biggest legal news in Indiana this year, the public reprimand of Indiana Attorney General Todd Rakita. The Indiana Supreme Court issued the reprimand on November 2nd, less than two months after the Indiana Supreme Court Disciplinary Commission filed its complaint against the Republican Attorney General. In its order, the Supreme Court approved an agreement between the commission and Rakita, finding that he violated Indiana Rules of Professional Conduct 3.6a and 4.4a through his comments about Indianapolis OBGYN Dr. Caitlin Bernard. Rakita appeared on a Fox News program in the summer of 2022, calling Bernard, quote, an abortion activist acting as a doctor with a history of failing to report, a comment that the parties agreed violated the attorney ethics rules. The commission had also alleged that Rakita violated Rule 8.4D by discussing his office's investigation into Bernard before officially filing an administrative action against her, but that charge was not part of the final disciplinary order. Justices Mark Massa, Jeffrey Slaughter, and Derek Moulter concurred in the discipline, but Chief Justice Loretta Rush and Justice Christopher Goff dissented, believing a reprimand was too lenient. While Rakita entered into the conditional agreement with the disciplinary commission, he struck a more defiant tone in his public response to the Supreme Court's order. In a lengthy statement released after the reprimand was issued, Rakita said the discipline boiled down to the 16 words he said about Bernard on Fox News. The statement then said, in part, quote, Having evidence and explanation for everything I said, I could have fought over those 16 words. But ending their campaign now will save a lot of taxpayer money and distraction, which is also very important to me. In order to resolve this, I was required to sign an affidavit without any modifications, end quote. All right, now let's go over to you, Alexa, to hear some sad news out of the Marion Superior Court. Longtime Marion Court jurist Chatrice Flowers died on November 5th at the age of 50. The Marion Superior Court announced her death that day, and the Indianapolis Star later reported that she died of an illness. Flowers had been the judge of Marion Superior Court 28 since she was elected in 2014. Before that, she had served as a master commissioner since 2005. During her time on the bench, Flowers served as the supervising judge of jury pool 
and the Arrestee Processing Center. She had also been an associate presiding judge on the Marion Superior Court Executive Committee since 2021. A statement from the courts described Flowers as handling the county's most serious cases. Flowers graduated from DePaul University with her bachelor's degree in 1995. She then earned her JD from Indiana University Robert H. McKinney School of Law. After her graduation, Flowers went into private practice at a small, family-owned firm. Prior to taking the bench, she worked as assistant corporation counsel for the Indianapolis Office of Corporation Counsel and as deputy public defender for the Marion County Public Defenders Agency. Memorial services were held for Flowers on November 14th at Light of the World Christian Church. The Marion County Judicial Selection Committee is accepting applications to fill the vacancy created on the court by her death. Thanks, Alexa. Staying in Indianapolis, Daniel, there's been some movement in the federal case against the city and local police over the death of Herman Whitfield III. What can you tell us about that? A federal judge has ruled that several Indianapolis Metropolitan Police Department documents related to the death of Whitfield must be withheld until the criminal cases against two officers involved in his death are resolved. But other documents not related to the criminal cases must be produced. Magistrate Judge Mark Dinsmore of the Indiana Southern District Court ruled in an order issued October 30th. Whitfield died in April 2022 after being tased and restrained by IMPD officers while in their custody. His parents had called police to the family home because he was experiencing a, quote, mental health crisis, end quote. A year later, a Marion County grand jury indicted officers Adam Ahmad and Stephen Sanchez on several felonies related to Whitfield's death, including involuntary manslaughter and reckless homicide. Ahmad and Sanchez moved to stay the federal case pending the resolution of the criminal cases, but the federal court declined. However, it did stay all written discovery directed to Sanchez and Ahmad, as well as their depositions. At issue in Dinsmore's order was a motion to compel discovery filed by Whitfield's estate. The court ordered the city to provide all withheld documents for an in-camera review. After that review, Dinsmore denied the motion to compel audio recordings and transcripts of Ahmad and Sanchez's statements, as well as notes and additional documents related to those statements. Other documents that contain summaries of those statements must also be redacted. But the remaining documents, which include additional officer interviews and other law enforcement notes, must be produced because they are not protected by the law enforcement investigatory privilege the deliberative process privilege, or the Fifth Amendment, according to Dinsmore. The criminal cases against Sanchez and Ahmad are pending in Marion Superior Court, with Sanchez's jury trial scheduled to start January 24, 2024, and Ahmad's trial scheduled to begin January 23, 2024. Thanks, Daniel. That's a case that I'm sure we'll be keeping an eye on for a while. Speaking of lawsuits, Alexa, tell us about the complaint that the city of Fort Wayne has filed against two major auto manufacturers. The city of Fort Wayne has joined other cities around the country, including Indianapolis, in suing the manufacturers of Hyundai and Kia vehicles. The lawsuit filed in California federal court alleges that auto manufacturers have neglected anti-theft technology, in turn created a public safety problem. According to the city, for the model years between 2011 and 2022, the two companies intentionally ignored industry standard practices in the name of profit. 
by not adopting a mobilizer technology that ensures a car can't be started without keys. That allegedly led to a 289% increase in Hyundai and Kia thefts in 2022 in Fort Wayne, with 2023 numbers already on the rise. In May, the automakers agreed to a $200 million settlement in consumer class action lawsuit that included about 9 million vehicles and a commitment to software update. In addition to Indianapolis and Fort Wayne, other cities that have filed lawsuits include St. Louis, Cincinnati, Cleveland, and Milwaukee, among others. Staying in northern Indiana, we also have some interesting news from Notre Dame Law about a new clinic. Daniel, what can you tell us about that? Notre Dame Law School is launching a new special education law clinic to serve parents of children with disabilities in the South Bend area as they advocate for services, accessibility, and accommodations. The clinic is set to launch in the 2024 spring semester as a pilot experiential learning course with approximately five law students. Veronica Webb, a 2023 graduate of Notre Dame Law School, has been named the clinic's inaugural clinical legal fellow. Webb will work closely with Professor Michael Genuine, a licensed attorney and clinical psychologist who directs the Applied Mediation Clinic. According to the law school, Webb worked as an occupational therapist in a private pediatric sensory integration clinic in Southern California prior to attending Notre Dame. Through her new position at the special education clinic, she will provide legal advice, advocacy, and representation to families. Webb will receive training in special education law while receiving mentorship from Genuine. She will have the flexibility to design a program tailored to the unique needs of the local community, and she is currently in the process of conducting outreach efforts and focus groups to identify specific needs in the community. Now we'll send it back to you, Alexa, to tell us about the new director of the American Civil Liberties Union of Indiana. Attorney Christopher Daly has been announced as the new executive director of the ACLU of Indiana. He'll succeed retiring executive director Jane Henniger at the beginning of the new year. Daly is currently the executive director of the Indiana Association of Resources and Child Advocacy, where he advocates for children in Indiana's foster care system. A Hoosier native, Daly grew up in Indianapolis and completed his undergraduate degree at Indiana University. He received his JD from the University of California Berkeley School of Law, then co-founded and led the Transgender Law Center in California. Daly also spent time in Washington, D.C., where he worked with organizations on criminal, legal, and immigration reform in his role as Deputy Executive Director at the Just Detention International. Tamara Winfrey-Harris, the Indiana ACLU's board president, said Daly, quote, has the unique experience and passion necessary to meet this moment where Hoosier's civil rights and liberties are under increasing threats, end quote. Thanks, Alexa. As we wrap up our headlines, I want to tell you about a decision from the Indiana Supreme Court that will have significant consequences for civil forfeiture actions. The justices unanimously ruled on October 31st that defendants to civil forfeiture actions have an Indiana constitutional right to a jury trial in those actions. The case involved $2,435 that was seized as part of a drug case. The state opened a forfeiture action for the cash, and the defendant asked for a jury trial. The state moved to strike the jury trial request, and the Allen Circuit Court initially granted that motion, but later vacated its ruling. The Court of Appeals of Indiana reversed, but the High Court upheld the trial court. 
Looking at Article 1, Section 20 of the Indiana Constitution and the history of civil forfeiture actions, the justices concluded, quote, the historical record consisting of statutes and judicial decisions reflecting contemporary practice strongly suggests that Indiana continued the common law tradition of trial by jury in actions for the forfeiture of property, end quote. And even if a cause of action did not exist at the time of the 1851 Indiana Constitution, the justices, quote, have little trouble concluding that the forfeiture here is not, as the state contends, akin to the equitable disgorgement of illegally obtained profits. That's because of who gets the proceeds of forfeited money, the in-rem theory of civil forfeiture, and the general rule that, quote, a court of equity will not interfere to give relief against a statutory forfeiture. Justice Christopher Goff wrote the opinion for the unanimous court, which remanded the case for a jury trial on the underlying civil forfeiture action. All right, Daniel, why don't you wrap us up by telling us about a story you're working on for our next issue about a topic that it seems like everyone is always talking about. I'll have a story looking at the Indiana Legislature's Interim Study Committee on Commerce and Economic Development and its examination of legalization of adult-use cannabis as it relates to workforce impacts and teen use. We'll see what the committee has discussed and what, if any, proposed legislation might be coming in the next session related to marijuana, including the chances of following the example of Ohio and legalizing recreational use of the drug. You can read that story in our November 22nd issue. All right, that'll do it for this week's headlines. As always, if you want more legal news, check us out at theindianalawyer.com. Stick around after our sponsor break to hear my conversation about veterans courts with Judge Granger. Taft, today's modern law firm. At Taft, we cultivate a highly respectful, transparent workplace that fosters creativity, teamwork, inclusion, and diversity. We couple our culture with a client-first approach, rewarding lawyers who understand their clients' goals and work to deliver success. Taft, the modern law firm. To learn more, visit taftlaw.com. For this week's extended interview, I'm joined via Zoom by Judge Maria Granger of Floyd Superior Court 3. Judge Granger, thanks so much for joining me. Oh, thank you for having me. All right. So Judge Granger was first elected to the bench in 2008. And if I'm correct, you were the only judge to preside over that court, right? That's correct. Yes. Yes. Created that same year. And also notably, and more specific to this conversation, you have the distinction of launching the first veterans court in the state back in 2012. So that's kind of what we're going to focus our conversation on today. Um, This episode will air right after Veterans Day. So we're going to explore some of these veterans issues. So why don't we just start with the basics? Um, You know, you've done a lot of work in terms of service to veterans. Why is that something that's so important to you? Yeah, I, I think probably for a couple of reasons, and I've I've just recently gotten to where I can I can tell the the whole story um, about what connected me to those issues most deeply. Um, and I think mostly because it's a vulnerable story to tell, um, but I don't mind sharing it. Um, I think there's probably two two people in my uh, there's a lot of people that impact your life, but there's two people in particular um, that have. Um, guided me that way, sort of the heartbeat of my service. Um, the first is my my uncle. Um, we called him Uncle Fox. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a Vietnam veteran. He was one of my mom's nine, four brothers and 
five sisters, you know, she had a big family and um, he came back after Vietnam and he was drinking too much. Um, He was out going out in public like that. Um, And he ended up getting arrested Mm -hmm. Um, and he got put in custody as part of that. And um, before my grandfather could even get there to pick him up, um, he was gone. Oh my gosh. Yes. So, uh, you know, I still remember my mom's face. Um, I can still see it imprinted on my brain. It'll be there forever. Um, whenever his body had to be taken off life support. So, I mean, it really just knocked my entire family to its knees after that episode. I was 17. Um, it was the March before I was going to graduate high school. And I was planning at all my life. Um, the Grangers loved music. So we were you know, that's what we did. We all played an instrument. We all sang. So I thought I was going to go study music. Um, and with that experience, it sort of turned me completely around um, to the place where I knew that, you know, I had a, I could only survive if I pursued justice. You know, uh, that's how I felt about um, that experience. That's how it sort of changed my trajectory as a young person. So fast forward to 2006. Um, the second person that I think influenced me most greatly around Veterans Court um, was my stepson, Stephen. Um, he was in his second tour in Iraq, August the 8th of 2006. You know, he wanted to be a physician's assistant, you know, becoming a medic um, after 2001, you know, after 9-11, after all that happened. You know, he wanted to go from being in the reserves to active duty, which is exactly what he did, like so many others did. He was planning on uh, furthering his education, you know, like so many young people attached to the military to help better themselves and make a life for themselves. And that's what he was focused on. Um, So he was a medic. um, But in that second tour, he was doing an air ambulance um, mission. They were getting their training hours um, and his his plane or his air ambulance, his Black Hawk that he was in crashed into a lake in Ruta, Iraq. Um, so um, at age 26, um, he became known to the world um, on that day as Sergeant Stephen P. Menemeyer. So, you know, I, I think both of them um, sort of impacted the way that I saw things um, and the things that I perceived, um, you know, as I went through the course of my career. So, you know, your, your stepson passes in 2006, you're elected 2008. First Veterans Court opens 2012. So kind of walk me through those six years and, and what led to that first court. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I would say, you know, just, you know, I had a criminal docket. And so I started seeing young um, men and women who just, uh, you know, they, they, they were Stephen. They reminded me of Stephen. You know, I could see, I, I remember coming home frantically, <laughs> kind of frantic. And one day with my, telling my husband, I felt like they were service members or, or veterans. They were young and they had that same dynamic about them that I had seen in him. And um, I, I started asking questions. I had to know what we were doing, you know, to address their exposures. Um, and what I found out was that we were doing what we what appeared and seemed to be the most just and fair thing, which was treating them like civilians. Um, but it wasn't actually taken into account the exposures and the experiences that they had in military service. There was a a miss, a a gap um, between what we were doing and what we 
um, probably could do better. So that that sort of got me down the path of finding out. And I, you know, I reached out to the VA first to find out what what they were doing. Um, and that's how I was in, uh, put in touch with the VJO. I mean, I think he was literally hired like that very week before, wow. you know, to, to start. So it was like the timing was inevitable. You know, it was like almost uncanny how the timing was just right on. Um, and I learned about a judge who had a drug court and a mental health court out in Buffalo. And he had started interacting with the Department of Veterans Affairs because he was noticing veterans in his programs. Um, so I went to meet Judge Robert Russell. So I hopped on a plane within, I don't know, by by early 2010, I was out to Buffalo in the worst time of the year, but out there just gathering all the information I could um, about how, how it could possibly work um, in Indiana under our system and what structure we had. Um, and so I took that and, uh, you know, just sort of sat down on a weekend and just started trying to hammer something out that made sense um, to start to address the needs that we were seeing. That's sort of the path that I took. It was rudimentary. I had no idea where it was going to lead. Um, I didn't know it was going to turn anything. I wasn't aware of really anything other than those things that I was perceiving. Were problem-solving courts in general really a thing in Indiana at that time, or was this kind of the first of its kind in multiple ways? Yeah, I would I would say that they were a thing because you know we had drug courts that had been about the state. I being new and not having experienced a drug court, I was not aware of how they worked. I wasn't aware of any mental health courts. Um, so for me, it was very much a learning process. Um, but I do think that probably it's veterans court was able to contribute to looking at problem solving justice in a different way um, than what it had been. And, you know, there was a lot of criticism in those early days, you know, about it being special treatment. Mm -hmm. So I, I did a lot of talking about, well, maybe it maybe it could be special treatment. And why wouldn't we do that um, for those who had, you know, been willing to sign up and give their life if they had to. Right. Um, so so what what's wrong with that? If it if there was something special about it. Um, but also, um, I think the other side of that was, is that they're not civilian. They're not getting their needs from the civilian lifestyle. Maybe the military attached to something in the past um, that, you know, kind of um, affected them. But these are military experiences and exposures um, that you just can't get here in the civilian world in the same, you know, you just can't get them. And so talking about that, you know, special treatment, quote unquote, and in, in those conversations you had to have, you know, veterans courts are, are prevalent around the state today. So, you know, something's changed in the last 11 years. So kind of talk to me about that process of, okay, I have a veterans court in my county. Let's get this out to others. Yeah. I, you know, I think that for me, it probably, I, I don't know, you know, how I best was able to ever describe it. And it was sort of a a poem, because I love poetry. And so it was a poem that from an unknown veteran. And I sort of, it was a little bit of a spin off of that in the respect that, you know, Veterans Court was a way to restore some of the veterans' investment. Um, they sign up to, to give their life um, if they have to. Um, and this is a way that we can restore that investment. So I, I sort of used that inspiration um, to help people see it through that lens. And, and I think that that was, you know, maybe something that, it, that was just a different way of looking at it that I helped 
I think helped that movement happen. So let's just maybe go back to basics and talk about, you know, you have a veteran comes into the criminal justice system. Take me from A to Z, you know, how they get into veteran court and and what goes on from there till they graduate. Yeah. And so that's been, um, that's grown through the years and in really great ways. We have a way now that we can connect to the Department of Veterans Affairs and how they track veterans um, mm. with our Odyssey case management system. Okay. So as Odyssey developed and that system developed, we were able to, the, the, the powers that be in our state that lead us, they were able to make a connection. So now we can identify them through um, a military history flag, essentially. Hmm, we can see them in our case management system. So um, right now, I, I, I did for years have um, a variety of criminal cases. Now I only, ha- I only have veterans in my county now. And so when they're filed, the name is cross-referenced with that military flag report. Um, so that's how we know that it should be filed with me or if it happens to be misfiled to be with me. Um, and then there is a individual who will assess them and use Indiana's risk assessment with some other screeners to help evaluate what need that they might have. Um, we picked what we did from what was evidence-based, some things that the VA had used that were very helpful in helping a veteran recognize that you know, they may be troubled, but not knowing what that trouble is all about necessarily. So the, the process of this assessment will help increase their own awareness about their personal struggles. And um, then the prosecuting attorney is a participating member of our team and will make a negotiate some terms and they do a dual offer. So we have two tracks essentially. So one offer would be for the veteran to um, receive treatment and they'll know what the outcome is if they complete the case that way, or one offer will be a traditional. And we try to honor what is important um, about the success of these programs. And one of the keys is early intervention. So we try to do this within 45 days. Um, So that way the case, you know, we have enough to know about discovery, but we haven't gotten down the adversarial path because it's a collaborative work um, and it's a partnership type of approach. So everybody's working at the end of trying to, once we have a veteran who can get the choice put before them, um, they get to observe um, how the court works. Um, So they get to come and see that. They have their attorney who can help assist them with understanding which path is better for them. Um, And then they get to make an informed, meaningful choice. Um, We've tried it several ways through the years. And this is the way that I, it it seems the most fair and just um, so that someone can make a choice in a way that they know what they're getting either way. You know, they know what that outcome is. So I think it's the most informed way that we've uh, been able to achieve. So what kind of results are you seeing? You know, I guess for lack of a a better way to ask it, does it work? You know, this process and this system? Yes. You know, I, I would, I'm really proud. You know, we've kept everyone who goes to the program and graduates, we've kept a a percentage rate of success uh, between 80 and 85%. Wow. And I think a lot of that is because we have a heavy emphasis on accountability throughout the process, not just accountability to not commit further crime, 
but accountability to give back to your community, to know how to advocate for yourself and the needs that you have with your providers, to keep your appointments because another vet is going to lose out if you just schedule one and don't to actually interact with each other and support your own peers, to rebuild relationships with Mm -hmm. um, making amends, working on those defects in our character Mm -hmm. um, that cause us to, you know, not behave at our best. Um, I mean, there's a myriad of things that we've incorporated into the phases of the program that I think really boost that accountability. So then the person that graduates hasn't just checked a box of what, you know, we would have them do on a condition, you know, to complete a stint of probation. Um, They have engaged in some life skill, you know, building and character building, personal development. There's a big part of that um, in these problem solving programs. And I think that's where the sweet spot is. Do you get the opportunity to kind of share your own story and and your own connections to these issues with the participants? You know, how I've used that is I've done it through, I mean, they know, I mean, now that the the jig is up, right? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And so they've heard about it, um, but I have used the graduations as Mm. an opportunity to not only educate my participants or people who might be interested um, but also to educate, you know, the community as well. Sure. And I've, I've, I guess I've un, unrolled that story gradually in bits over time. But yeah, and, and I think it's important because I'm asking them to do some real vulnerable things. So I think it's really important that they see me as a human being and sure. that they know I see them as human beings as well. Um, because I think without that, we won't get anywhere. Now, we've been talking, you know, about about Floyd County, but... I believe there's a, a regional partnership down in your portion of the state. Is there not? Can you can you talk about that? Yes, we um we we started putting that all together back in 2015, and it was somewhat out of um, there was a need for it because we wanted to make sure that the resources we we weren't as counties competing against each other to get limited resources to make these programs capable of serving. We also had, you know, the the Justice Outreach Program to the Department of Veterans Affairs was developing also. So, you know, they had large service areas to do that, their outreach into the jails. Um, so we couldn't, you know, just overtax them by everybody popping up uh, a court. So, you know, the best way that we could figure out how to do it was to combine our efforts. So we sat down as a district. And um, that just made the most sense because we could, um, you know, just really combine our resources and use them as efficiently as we could streamline the process. So now we have a program that consists of our full district, which is Clark, Floyd and Scott. We have three judges that participate um, and a judge that will help us do termination hearings um, when we have to do those. Um, we just try, we hope that the, he never has to go to work, but you know, it happens sometimes we divide up our participants, not by the geography. Um, so it's not by the County. We divide them up by their need, their risk. So we use that risk assessment to help us. So I take the high risk, the alphas, then we have a judge that will take the, the Bravo, which is the moderate risk. And then to take the Charlie team, which is the low risk. And, you know, each of them have tailored plans, 
each participant has tailored plans and then each level has certain phases that are different and distinct from the others. Um, so we've really tried to drill down on um, making sure that those that accountability that I talked about can really be nurtured and developed um, along as those treatment needs being met that the individual veteran comes in with. So what might be the difference between an alpha and a Charlie in terms of the risk factors? Yeah, I would say um, some of them um, would just uh, would attach to criminal history mm. for the most part. So usually the ones I see, some of them come out of DOC and come straight to me off of a modification maybe. Some of them um, will come after a lot of stints in, car- in incarceration over drug offenses. And and then, you know, like the lower risk or have much fewer, they may be coming in. You know, sometimes we have young men that are in the National Guard who have gotten in, uh, you know, some kind of OWI or something more minor, but realize that they have a problem Sure, that needs to be addressed sooner than later. I want as a lot of people in that group, as many, you know, the, the quicker that we can nip things in the bud, it doesn't get to an alpha, you know? Right, sure. We hate to see that happen. Um, so we want to be as prudent and um, as on top of that, um, making sure as many have. So we've we've done a lot too with our local military to make sure they understand how the program works. So they know if they have somebody who is in need. So they, I, I consider them part of our partnership work. So, you know, they can get that person to us. Do you feel like through this process, you've had to become kind of a, a mental health, you know, not expert, but kind of, you know, more versed in, in the world of, you know, PTSD or whatever might might come with that? Is that something you really had to learn more about? Yeah, I would say I've had to learn, I've had to understand how it appears in people's lives, you know, and how it affects them. Sure. Um, I don't, I understand that there are treatments for it. And I try to understand what those are, what my options are, what their options are. You know, we are not counselors. You know, we are, we are, we stay on our, in our lane, which our lane is justice. Mm -hmm. So I consider myself, you know, some days I'm a cheerleader. Um, Some days I am that person who is all in your business, you know, (laughs) who knows the the details and will remind you of what those are, you know. Um, I'm the person who can help them, you know, see some things that they have forgotten about that they can be doing to practice um, and improve in in the areas that there may be weak points. So our treatment team, um, one of the things that we spent a lot of time doing, I spent a lot of time doing is um, working with the docs at the VA. Hmm. They are talented. They are excellent. And so I wanted to make sure they understood who I was and what what I was where I was coming from, because it was not typical that they interacted with people who were coming out of the criminal justice, coming out of jail, and over there. You know, I mean, it's sort of like there was a break, there was a gap whenever we first started. And so we've worked really hard to make sure we bridge that gap and that there is a a, a trust built. You know, um, so we've been putting stuff in that trust vault for years. Um, to make sure that they know that we're not crossing into their lane and doing doing the work that they do. You know, if I see a problem, I, I'm not going to let a veteran, you know, split mom and dad up, right? Sure. Um, I want to make sure that there's open communication uh, about what the problem is, 
how it's appearing to us. So that way it can be dealt with in a therapeutic way. I think that's a, that's like any relationship. It's something that you have to nurture and work at. Uh, but I think if you put the time in, it can be very, very positive. Sure. So we've been talking a lot about the criminal side of things, but certainly there are services available on the civil side of things for veterans. You know, I think of of housing, um, you know, getting proper benefits, things like that. So is that something that you that you work on or that, you know, you can you can point them to throughout this process? Yes, um, we do. We have um, a few resources. The Military Family Assistance Centers, we have a representative on our team for the Indiana National Guard um, that helps with a lot of the benefits that come through the state that will help the veteran and their family members. We work with them. We also work with the the veteran service officers, so they um, come and participate, um, and we make a lot of referrals to them um, through the process of this. Um, We have several years um, we did joint before COVID we (laughs) did stand downs veteran stand downs where we would bring all the providers who would in our area who served veterans in whatever capacity they did and so one of our big connectors there was Indiana Legal Services Um, so they were able to really um, help with so many things that they needed Um, sometimes we've used pro bono volunteers to help with that. But, you know, I I would say probably the top thing is getting your driving privilege back. Mm, You know, that's when, when that privilege is restored and we've got somebody to help or do that relicensing. I mean, it makes it possible for the veteran to get their job. It's a huge wellness booster. I've, I've watched veterans who I were, I was afraid when they started that they were, might be considering suicide. The depression was so severe that once they get their license pulled together, they get back on a job. I mean, it is the confidence builder that really leads to a lot of personal accountability and and healthy striving um, that I think, I mean, you just can't put, you can't put a value on how that changes someone's life. Uh, It's significant. So, you know, we've come up on 11, almost 12 years of veterans court at, at this point. And I'm, you know, I'm sure it's evolved a lot over those years. But do you see a next step or, you know, do you have a a goal or a wish for, you know, what this program could become in the future? I think that um, I don't know if I have a specific wish. I I hope that more, you know, sort of like I like the dual track system and I would love to see that become just part of our system Mm, where there's this treatment approach. That's an opportunity every time. And there's a traditional approach and people get a chance to decide for treatment more often. Um, I think that that has been something that we have just left uh, on the back end only, you know, once they get into a probation status. Um, I think there's a room for these type of collaborations in other areas of the law outside of the criminal justice area, maybe in the family realm, you know, of these family problem-solving courts, these same issues um, that I see with the veterans are also showing up on my protection order docket and on my divorce docket as well. So it would be great to see that this approach is encompassed all across the board um, and that you know we can leverage civil legal aid and legal assistance centers um, to help in some of these areas that 
they are already working on, you know, and just become more of, you know, just more a part of that process. Well, we've covered a lot of ground, but, you know, is there anything else about Veterans Court that, you know, we didn't discuss that you want to make sure is, is shared? Well, I mean, if you have not gone to see a graduation, go to one, because I think that it opens up a lot of uh, awareness, it raises a lot of awareness about how these programs are really working. Um, and that's something that you you can read stats all day, but to see the change um, right up close and personal is compelling. Um, if you don't have one in your area, um, find what, where one is. Um, if you have the chance to influence someone um, to get involved in one of these programs, if it so happens that they need it, um, to encourage that. Okay, that'll do it for this week's extended interview. Thank you again, Judge Granger, for joining me. Thank you. All right. And as always to our listeners, if you want to hear past interviews, visit theindianalawyer.com or check out your favorite podcast app. We'll see you next time.